Hello and welcome to the Magical Learning Podcast. Today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're all on holidays at the moment, so we're actually going to be giving you a, an old conversation that Danette and Graham had with the Digital Trade School in Ontario. So this is going to be a slightly different format. You're going to hear a little bit of the backstory of magical learning and a bunch of other things. I hope you're enjoying your holidays if you're on them. If not, enjoy them soon. So Graham and Danette and I, and uh, I'll have a chance for you guys to maybe just introduce yourselves and the backstories a little bit and, uh, and what got you into this work. We had the pleasure of meeting two years ago um, at a summit called the Titan Summit. At the Titan Summit, this is where a group of leaders from around the world, this year there was about 35, 36 countries coming together, all to focus around this idea of building internal empires. And you might wonder, what the, what the heck is an internal empire? So when it comes to high performance at work, we're just living an amazing life, we talk a lot about skill set. That's a big part of the Digital Marketing Apprenticeship Program. But what this summit really focuses around is developing that leadership capability around our mindset, but also going really deep around these notions of health set, heart set, soul set, really important things that are often not necessarily talked about in the context of post-secondary education, let alone leadership development as we continue to move forward in our careers. So through there, we had a chance to meet, and Danette and Graham traveled the world for what seems like most of your weeks throughout the course of the year, working with leaders around the world on this space of neural leadership. So the neuroscience of leadership. What's the actual neurobiology of leadership? How can we better understand the science of how our body works, our brain works, in the context of coaching leaders to reach their potential? And you guys go really deep when it comes to the heart set and the soul set stuff with leaders, something that's often not necessarily a comfortable topic to get into. It's a lot easier to have lots of reasons to not go into that space, but, but a pretty powerful space too. So I'm um, really excited for the next maybe 15, 20, 25 minutes just to have a great conversation. I asked Graham and Danette just to share what are some of the things that you're seeing as you're traveling globally and working with these leaders? What are they working on? What are some of the tactics and practices and philosophies that they're not only building into their lives, but also into their teams and into the environments and their businesses to not only necessarily just win this quarter, but to win long term? So Graham, Danette, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you so I guess maybe just to jump right into things, we don't need to go into titles and you know all those types of things and all the different backgrounds and certifications and credentials you guys have. What I'd love to know is how did you actually find yourself in the space of self-leadership? Because I don't think anybody really graduates school or starts their career seeing that as the first step. So would you guys be so kind to introduce yourself and just a bit of insight in how you got there? Do you want to go first? Sure. Thanks, Dave. Uh, hi, everyone. Very grateful for the opportunity to, um, to be here with you this evening. How do we fall into this? Danette and I run a company called Magical Learning. We started approximately 20 years ago, uh, mainly because we were terrible employees, so we figured what the hell we should just start a business. Play ourselves. <laughs> we have uh, five kids and, and we wanted to have, a, uh, I guess, a, a work situation that enabled us to spend more time with the kids as they were growing up. So that's sort of where it started. Uh, we've both been very interested in helping other people learn and grow for a long time, avid readers. Um, the Catalyst was probably uh, an event we came to in Toronto six or seven years ago. It was a weekend event being run by Robin Sharma. It was about personal development and growth. Uh, and I think that was the, the huge trigger for us. Uh, in terms of one of the advantages of, of 
being exposed to a different way of thinking and being exposed to, to new information is it challenges some of the existing beliefs that we had about what was possible. Um, and, and it really has been just a, an elevation since then. So uh, personally for me, just going to that event, uh, apart from the fact it was on the other side of the world, was uh, a huge eye-opener again in terms of what was the, the latest uh, what was the latest science around how we learn, how we grow, what does leadership mean for people on the other side of the world? Because um, I, I'm not sure if you know, but Australia is a little bit separate from... You all the live on the wrong the side of the planet is basically what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, so for us, I think that that was probably the catalyst. And it just opens you up to a new way of thinking about who you are, what's possible, what does leadership mean, what does it look like in an organisational context, and more importantly, what does leadership look like for me as an individual? Great. Okay. Yeah. So, weirdly, I'm an accountant um, because I didn't like numbers at school, in fact, failed maths. Um, only did accounting because I wanted to do an economics degree, and my dad's best mate said, do accounting because you'll always have a job. Great advice did not understand my entire degree. It didn't understand what invoice was, let alone all the other stuff they used to talk about. But bumbled my way through and passed. Bare pass, I've got to say. Nine months after that, it all clicked because I was doing it. I was learning it while I was working for people. And then I said to my husband, I should get this. And he goes, yeah, you're really smart, but you talk yourself out of being smart. You always talk yourself about you don't understand, you don't know. And then I became really curious about the language that I used, which didn't empower me. And from there, and this was when I was in my early 20s, I went on this massive journey, which continues till today, which is about learning who I am and how I can empower others. And every day is a journey in learning about yourself, because the moment we think we've got it, someone's gonna press your button, and it's not them that's got the issue, it's you that's got the issue. In this case, I'll use me as an example. Because if someone presses my button, they're actually my angel. Because they've showed me a part of me that I actually haven't explored yet. Which means that if I'm reacting to them, I'm not the best leader I can be. If we want to bring out the best in others, we actually have to bring out the best in ourselves first. So that journey started early 20s, and I'm now 53. And when I die at 125, planning for that one, because I've got all these sets right, <laughs> that I'll still be growing. And so I think it's great that Dave's brought you all together here to, you know, for some of you, you know, this is the start of a really amazing journey. Your greatest journey will be to get to know you mm -hmm. and who you really are and what's important for you. Because that makes you lead you, which enables you to lead others. So that's mine. That's super, and I think you touched on the whole entire idea of self-leadership. When we talk about leadership, and it's often taught, whether formally in training or in schools, it's all about leading other people. But I think what I'm hearing from you is it's all about, like the, one of the biggest gifts that you can actually build for yourself is developing the capability to understand how to control yourself and to lead yourself within that. Yes. You talked about pressing buttons, and I loved your point there. You know, a lot of times people will push our buttons or we'll have experiences that create a bit of friction for us, and I think in many cases that actually teaches us um, a ton of things, but it's very easy to overlook them and try and run away from those because often they're, they're painful. Yes. They're not enjoyable, right? Yeah. 
but wondering, you know, what's an example for both of you of a big button that was maybe pressed or a failure that you guys had in the early parts of your career that led to really significant change? Because I'm a real strong believer that change doesn't happen unless pain gets to a 9 or a 10 out of 10. If something's, you know, a 4 or 5 out of 10, the job's not that bad, I'm getting paid pretty good, or this relationship with my girlfriend or my wife, you know, sure we have our odd moments, but it's not that bad, nothing really changes. Is there a moment where it was a 9 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 for you that really advanced and accelerated some of this change beyond just, you know, a, a conference, if you will, that was six years ago that inspired you to explore a space that was a bit different? Yep. So do you want me to start? So probably four years ago, I mean, my life's always been about growth, but four years ago, a week before Christmas, one of our business partners, so we used to issue qualifications, so we would run diplomas, advanced diplomas, We'd do the training, etc., but our business partner would issue the actual qualifications. And a week before Christmas, they went belly up. And they took out 90% of our income overnight, a week before Christmas. Now, at that stage, we still had several children at home. We have five children between us. And it was like, holy crap. And it was like... Oh, blame, blame, blame. Oh, oops. Well, we helped get to that point because we had that dependence on that income. And we actually didn't like that part of our business and we'd spoken for probably two or three years about getting rid of that side of our business. So once I calmed down and went, we've started businesses before. I'm never going to fail because we've got five mouths to feed. So you know what? We got up, dusted ourselves off, and that was the best thing that ever happened because we wouldn't be travelling the world teaching leadership now had we still had that business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I've got to say, from a leadership perspective, your best leadership lessons will actually be when you fail. Because when you fail, you find the strength within you to get back up. It's really easy to be a great leader when you're actually easy times your greatness actually comes out in the really crap times. So when it gets hard, dig in and find who you really are and support each other, because that's critical. Mm -hmm. And did you have that awareness when you were going through that? Like, you know, one of the things my wife Jen and I often talk about is this idea of an umbrella. Each of us have our own umbrella. It's made of grit and resiliency and optimism. And in life, you can't get through it without it raining. Like, I don't know about you, but it's rained for me multiple times. I know everybody in the room has probably experienced that. Did somebody come and bring an umbrella for you at that point in time, or did you lean on your family for that? What did that look like? And I'm wondering maybe a part two to that is, as you're starting to do a lot of your leadership training around the world, is it moments like that when there's big storms and big rain when you start relationships with some of your new clients and you find yourselves having individuals open to the idea of self-leadership and developing skills around that? So the umbrella for us uh, when our business partner folded was a business mastermind group that we were a part of at the time. Um, I'm not sure that we were as, uh, I think some of the awareness in terms of how we reacted to the situation came afterwards, as it often does. But the umbrella for us absolutely was having a group that we could, uh, that we could go to, that we could talk about it. One of the, the challenges in, in running a business together is um, there's, there's no opportunity to separate business from relationship, if that makes sense. So, 
<laughs> I love you. Um, but having others that we could talk to, I, I think, is, is massively important. You know, we don't, um, we don't succeed on our own, and we also um, we fail better when we have others who can support us through the failure. And failure is absolutely essential on a level. Uh, any business that has succeeded over time has failed massively, sometimes a lot more than just once, or any business owner. If they become hugely successful, it's only because they've failed a lot of times, but they've had support to be able to work through that. So, you know, we learned some lessons. We learned a lot of lessons from that. One of those was that, uh, ironically, we had been talking on and off for probably 12 months about shelving that part, actually getting out of that part of, of our business, and then the universe just arranged for it to happen a little sooner. And you expect it, if you will. Yes. Right on. So, I mean, good background on how you guys got started, just some of the realities of just being human, and sometimes these challenges and failures bringing us a little bit closer to our, our own alignment, if you will, and I think doing the things that we ought to have already been doing, but sometimes I think we just need nudges, if you will, be it the universe or, or what have you. Um, now you're in the space of, of leadership, and you've been going deep into this idea of neuroleadership. Wondering if you can just share, what is neuroleadership? You know, it's an emerging area of study and an area of work that not a lot of people are familiar with. Can you, can you share a bit about how you found it and why are leaders excited about it right now? So neuroleadership is, is the study of your brain and how that impacts on how you show up as a leader. For example, we know that when you're stressed you won't think as well as when you're calm. And we actually know from the neuroleadership science that in a room where there's a bit of anxiety, we look for the person who is most calm and most assertive because we have these funny little things at the front of our brain called mirror neurons. So for example, if I come in, and I'll have to stand up to demonstrate this, and, and I'm the leader and I'm like, your mirror neurons will fire going, what's going on? And that'll put you into fear, which means you won't think as well. So if you're a, a leader who gets a bit antsy rather than learning to become calm, it actually becomes infectious with your team. And so our role as, as leaders is to learn that science in order to be able to present as the best possible leaders. So to learn to even just breathe deeply when chaos is happening is critical for us. And at that time, usually what we do is go, oh. And again, that's right. contagious. So that's a simple snippet of, and the brain science is, is being discovered so rapidly that as a leader, if we're not learning something new pretty much every day, we're falling behind. And you would know this already because you're working in the digital space. I reckon if you just breathe, five things have changed. And so if your space you're working in is changing and you're leading people, that investment in you is so important. And if you understand the brain science, you can actually grow your people really fast because you're growing yourself really fast. Right. I, like I mean, that. one of the things that we often talk about with digital trades or the actual skills is the skills are having a half-life of a year and a half or a year, right? So the things that even that we're learning here in the Digital Marketing Apprenticeship Program, fast forward to 2020, you ought to be continuously learning because unfortunately the things that we're teaching you right now, while they're really valuable, <laughs> in two years from now, the value of that's gonna rapidly decline, right? 
And I think what kind of comes up for me, we were talking about this earlier today, everybody's familiar with the idea of IQ. Most of us are familiar with the idea of EQ, right? Emotional quotient and developing those skills. But there's an emerging area within this field of neural leadership called AQ. Do you mind sharing a bit about that? Because when it comes to the idea of continuous learning and the reality and the truth that these skills have a half-life of a year and a half, I think AQ is pretty relevant to that. Can, can I ask a question and then I'll get Graham to yeah. talk about AQ? So if I had enough racehorses to bring into this room, which I would give every one of you one, and I could guarantee that it would give you a million dollars, a million pounds, a million whatever, over its lifetime. Is there anyone, hands up if you wouldn't take that racehorse. So everything's done for it, but it's going to earn you a million bucks. Would you take it? Hands up if you would take it. Would. Would. Chop. So in Australia in 2013, and I know we're in Canada, but I'm going to give you the dollars in Australia. They did a study and they said if you leave school in year 11, which is just below graduating for university in Australia, your average lifetime earnings would be $1.7 million. Now we're pretty much one-on-one -on -one equivalent Canadian to Australian dollars. If you leave with a master's or more, $3.2 million. Now this is back in 2012 dollars. So every single one of you will create everything in your life. And that ability to invest and continuously grow, and it's not, I'm going to do one thing this month and it's going to be massive, but then I'm not going to do anything for six months. If you spend half an hour a day every day, it compounds. So your growth will feel like this and then it'll go like this. And the reason we get to travel the world now is because we invest in ourselves. So I want you to remember that everything you create actually comes from what you invest in yourself, in here and in here. Mm -hmm. And so AQ has to be part of your next strategy. And I'm going to hand that over to Graham. No pressure. <laughs> so, thanks. <laughs> AQ uh, is essentially adaptability quotient. So. We all know that change is happening and it's not going to stop and the pace of change is picking up. We've got a lot of futurists, uh, people who call themselves futurists, who tell us that you know, the, the future looks like this. really have no idea because we don't really have a reliable model for predicting what the future is going to look like because it continues to change. So EQ is all about understanding that as human beings we are emotional creatures. It's not possible to be alive and not experience emotion. We can pretend that we don't, but it's still there. So a big part of emotional intelligence comes back to understanding ourselves. What emotions am I experiencing? What triggers those emotions? How do I manage them? How do I manage my emotional relationship with other people? What's the impact that I have emotionally on others? All of that sort of stuff. AQ is, is about building, uh, and we go back to the, the grit and resilience thing that Dave talked about earlier. Um, part of the adaptability quotient is being able to pivot rapidly, continuously over the next 5, 10, 15, 20, uh, for some of you, if you're 125, so probably around about 100 years. Something to look forward to. Maybe more. Who knows? By then you might get to live to 200. But it really is about being, uh, getting yourself into a mindset and a heart set because it's not just an intellectual process. Change affects us emotionally. We're biologically hardwired to want to stay with a tribe that makes us feel safe. 
change doesn't make us feel safe. We can teach ourselves to feel comfortable about it, but it is a part of that is a learning process. So the whole AQ thing is really becoming more comfortable with the fact that things will continue to change, and I'm adaptable to that. So I, yeah, part of a brain likes certainty. We like to feel that we know what's coming up in the next year, the next you know, two years, next three years, or whatever it happens to be. And when we lack that certainty, um, it, it affects the dopamine levels in our brain, so our dopamine levels drop, and it makes us feel worse. And, and this is the environment that we're all in. I don't think anybody exists in, a, in an environment where nothing is changing. So the adaptability piece really is building a muscle around having an expectation that things are going to go this way, realising they're actually heading in that direction, and being able to adapt to that rather than just trying to pretend that it's not happening. But adapt in a, uh, if we go back to the, the, the resilience piece in part, it's being able to adapt in a way where I'm still feeling good about myself, etc. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And there's a question I was going to ask is like, how the heck do you build AQ? <laughs> how do you build those muscles? You know, a friend of mine who's joining us tonight, Sandeep, him and I talk all the time about physical training, right? How do you get bigger, faster, stronger, healthier? It's very clear how to go and do that. It's well understood. How do you build AQ? Can you actually build it? And maybe you can even answer from the perspective of, of a leader inside of a company, right? If I want to build this inside of my workplace um, and make sure that if I'm anticipating change, right? I mean, Steve, we've had a chance to work together lots in the insurance space as an example, right? Change is afoot very, very imminently within the insurance industry right now. If I have a team of 30 people, how do I make sure that I, as the CEO, am not the only person who understands this, but I'm building that within my team? But how do I do it where I'm not burning them out, yep. where I'm not doing it where I'm also putting my business at risk? Is that possible? What do you guys yeah, see? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, if I can just, sure. just so one thing I did want to touch on really briefly is the, the traditional view we've had of a leader is someone who has followers. So I can be a leader in an organization because I have a title, I'm the CEO, or I've got some sort of position or authority, and I can, uh, you know, I can use that authority or my position to lead others in the organisation. What I'd love all of us to start thinking about is that being a leader today does not require you to have followers at all. Because one of the issues with that is that, well, if I'm a, a startup and I'm my own CEO and I'm my own boss and it's my business and I have no other staff, then I can't be a leader, and that's completely flawed. So leadership has no, for me, leadership has nothing to do with having followers. It's much more about, it's an attitude, it's, it's the way we think, feel, and behave at work and outside of work. Good place to start. The other thing I would say, and then I'm just going to flick past to Danette, is building AQ, in fact, all of this starts with self-awareness. Big part of emotional intelligence, understanding ourselves. Because one of the things that AQ requires is that we can change, we can pivot. And we can't do that because that's a partly a conscious choice, partly an emotional choice. We can't do that unless we're aware of the need to do that. So um, one of the things I'd love for you to take away is that you're actually your own CEO because you all have a career and that career might be with one organisation, it might be with multiple and some organisations will invest heavily in you and others won't. And if you let that define you, you let them control you. And so we need to think about ourselves always as I'm CEO of me. I'm in charge of my career, my life. 
To be able to adapt, there's a couple of critical things. And you're going to like the first one. It's about self-care. So when we look after ourselves first, because you can't lead anyone if you're not looking after yourself, and you'll know you're not looking after yourself, and I'm going to swear here and I'm going to apologise in advance, but when I coach clients and they haven't looked after themselves, they all say this same phrase. They come in and they go, Danette, everybody is pissing me off. I just want to throw my phone, chuck my computer, <laughs> yeah, <it's> like... <laughs> and find awesome. a cave. And then I ask them a question. I go, when was the last time you did something that made you smile? I don't remember the last time. <laughs> And that tells me that they've been so generous with everyone else. So they've looked after everyone else, but they've forgotten about themselves. And we can only serve others when we first look after ourselves. So to be able to be highly adaptable, first your self-care must be number one. Then everyone else, but you first. Because then you can serve at the highest level. One thing you're saying that comes to mind, an exercise I've loved doing with leadership teams, is asking them to make a list of all the people that they serve. Take five minutes, go ahead and do that, make your list, and then where are you in that list? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For many of us, I'm on page seven, right, yeah. within there. Yeah. Just a reminder that you know, we need to make sure we're on top of that. Please, continue. Okay. So other pieces that are a big part of being able to develop that characteristic and, and skill of being adaptable. Yes. The other one is the whole growth mindset. So remember when I said, you know, the difficult times are going to make you a much better leader? If we really want to live a life full out where you actually feel fully alive, you have to push yourself beyond comfort zone every day. Because what happens is we think that uncomfortable is bad because our brain and body go, oh, I don't like feeling uncomfortable. But in fact, change is uncomfortable and it's your growth. So if you are not feeling uncomfortable, you're actually not growing. And what we see is, because we in, in Australia we deal with um, a lot of public servants and a lot of them take that job on because it means security for life. But they actually stop living. So they go to work day in, day out, but they get no enjoyment from what they're doing. And we teach stress and resilience, and we'll say to them, so hands up, when was the last time you felt fully alive? And they sit there going. <laughs> and finally, someone will go, oh, oh, what was it? And I had a guy, and he said, three months ago, my daughter wanted to jump out of a plane. And, and I felt like I had to go with her. I was scared of heights, but I wanted to jump out. So he said, I did it. And he said, the moment I jumped out and they pulled the thing, fully in my body, fully alive. But when we don't do that stuff, we become numb. Because think about it, when you fully feel alive, you're doing something that's way outside your comfort zone. And the summit we were just at, these were all really high-performing people, like... Chris Hadfield? Chris Hadfield was there, yeah. Tom so, Bellew, yeah. Deepak Chopra. Deepak so Chopra. They all talked about doing this crazy stuff that was right on the edge of the probably risk and everything, but you know what? If they fail, they fail, they'll learn something. And they planned a lot, because this is the other message, is you can plan for all of those big risks, and sometimes they'll happen and sometimes they won't, 
But they didn't go, well, I'm not going to be able to control everything, so I'm not going to do it. They went, you know what? Someone's got to do this, so why not me? And there was a wonderful gentleman on stage who contracted a virus, a strep virus, where he lost his arms and his legs. And he now is canoeing in Greenland, and he went across Ethiopia in a wheelchair, mm -hmm. some electric-powered thing, and he's building wheelchairs in Africa that people can afford, because over there they can't afford what currently is available in the market. So when we all push ourselves every day, we make the world a better place. And if you're scared, look at the people who go from way back, like Alex, who was in the wheelchair, who's done things that most of us would never even think of doing. And you can all do it. Mm -hmm. can, so, I, can I just, sorry, please, really, yeah. really I'm, I'm very motivated. add a couple of things to that. Um, the self-care thing. It's a great question, you know, the, the top five people you spend most time and attention to, where are you on that list? This is important not because you are more important than anyone else in your life, but you are as important as everyone. And, and we have this conversation with a lot of our coaching clients who are parents, because parents, particularly mums, typically tend to put their kids first. So I'll, give all of the, I'll look after the kids, I'll give them everything, give them everything, give them everything, because the story in my head is that's the right thing to do as a mum or as a parent. And the reality is, it's, it's a flawed argument. So self-care is immensely important for every single one of you because you are as important as everyone else on the planet. And it's your responsibility to look after yourself first. Because when you do that, you're a better human being. Mm -hmm. And we want to be with you. And you have a better impact on everybody around you. And you know, if you look after yourself, uh, there's so much science behind the fact that youth can, uh, you are more creative you're more productive. You're generally just a happier person. So anyway, that's one thing. Um, the other point I wanted to make has completely gone out of my head, which is fantastic. So <laughs> it probably wasn't that relevant. Continuous learning. The cont <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> How'd you guys oh, do that? Married. <laughs> so the other thing I was going to say around pushing yourself, and I agree 100%, you know, we do need, and, and we can teach ourselves to feel comfortable about being uncomfortable. We can absolutely get to the point where you can be in that state of discomfort more of the time and be okay with it. But one thing I would say about that is do it from a place of self-love. So it's, if you've got a harsh end, it's like, it's, if you go to the gym, um, which would you rather be? If you wanted to go to the gym five times a week and you're gonna spend an hour in the gym, can you make it a fun, amazing, joyful experience, or is it an absolute grind while you're in there? So what is the story in your head around that? Um, one of the most amazing human beings we've met, Dr. James Rouse. James is 55, he looks 25, <laughs> he's, he's impressively fit. Everything he does, um, and in fact, one of his favorite questions before he, um, he walks through every doorway is what would love do here? So when you think about pushing yourself and driving yourself to grow and to become better and to achieve more and to do more and to, and to be more, start with the be more. Mm -hmm. I think an important part there too is to not lose sight as we're trying to be more or practice self-love. Like it's, it's not about dropping the focus of execution and showing up and Correct. doing good work. It's about gracefully navigating between these two, right? It's the polarities of those that kind of delicately go back and forth because 
I think one of the common criticisms of self-love, self-compassion, um, you know, sounds so narcissistic, or aren't you, like, why are you doing this whole entire walking through a door and asking what would love do, like, get to work. <laughs> we ought to go and ship this product by this deadline, right? And so it's about, I think, just that level of attunement and knowing when you need those types of things. And you can have both. It's not one or the other within there. Yeah. As you were talking about the growth mindset piece, I think one thing that's really always resonated with me is this idea that with the growth mindset, the belief is that obstacles are a part of the pathway to mastery, right? They are not a reason to turn around and to go home and a reason why we shouldn't be going to go and pursue that. But, you know, that comes with self-awareness. You have to develop that over time. Just really quickly, Graham, and then I'd love to move on to some of our next questions. When it comes to self-awareness, you're a big fan of journaling. In yep. particular, you've learned a lot and have taught me a lot about this art of deconstruction. Yep. What does that mean? And just maybe just really quickly, how do you build that into your practice, this notion of deconstructing, to really make sure you're staying on point with that perspective and that mindset as you go outside your comfort zone and jump out of the airplanes? So the, the deconstructing um, tool, if you like, is a is an opportunity to take any any experience. Uh, I can have a conversation with somebody at work, and there's some emotion around that, and I react rather than respond. It doesn't go well. We both go away feeling really crap about it. So part of the journaling process the next morning can be literally deconstructing that entire experience. So what happened? How did I react? What emotions were I was I feeling? What triggered those? What could I choose to do differently the next time around that would give me a better outcome? Um, if, you, if you don't, you know, if, if you just wanted one um, technique or one process, one ritual to introduce that could have uh, immense benefits for you across most of the aspects of your existence, journaling would be one. You know, 10 or 15 minutes every morning is a, is a wonderful way to build more self-awareness. The deconstruction tool, again, is a great way of literally of doing that, deconstructing an experience, deconstructing a process. Who would be interested in seeing what an example of deconstruction looks like? Just a quick show of hands. Okay, awesome. We'll get an example of that out to the group just yep. to be able to see what it looks like. This is not sitting down and writing seven or eight pages of journaling. This is a very simple five, ten-minute high-impact exercise of literally just mind-mapping out an experience, but it's about turning off your phone, sitting down and actually doing it. Big idea, right? But nevertheless, it's so easy to not go and do it. So we'll make sure we share an example um, with you just to see what this looks like. It's a lot easier to go and model it within there. This idea of AQ, want to circle back to that. Things are changing. I think you know, the amount of career pivots that our parents have gone through is either zero or one, maybe two. Um, and so I think we can definitely expect in our lifetime it's going to be five, six, seven. I mean, I've been graduated for now 10 years and I've already gone through three, right? So uh, that's any tell to where things are going. But part of this, I think, as we make some of these changes, there's an opportunity to make sure that we have really good alignment with what we're doing and making sure we're actually doing the craft that we should be doing. In the context of building a new business, we talk a lot about product market fit. Are we building a product that's actually serving a need or problem solution fit? I think there's an opportunity, especially when our graduates are going through this next stage of trying to find their next job, whether that's starting your own agency and picking what market you want to go and serve or which company you want to go and join or what type of role you want to go and take, is making sure there's a business you fit yes. as you go through that. Yeah. And as you share the idea of being a CEO of your own career, I think that puts the power in the individuals who are looking for that opportunity, not just the employer in assessing that. 
and seeing the interview opportunity as a way to go and do that. I mean, I commonly joke that interviews are the meeting of two liars, right? You have the employer who's selling everybody on how great this experience is going to be for you, how great we treat our people and all the exciting things we're doing. And then we have our, you know, the prospective hires coming in talking about all the great projects that I've done and all the great success that I have and, and you know, all the experiences that I have in my belt, when really we're just trying to get to the core of it and trying to find truth as to whether or not this is going to be a win-win both for the company <laughs> and for the individual. But I wonder if you have any comments for um, you know, some of our students or even some of our coaches as we're going through these changes are there very practical things that we can do to make sure that we're evaluating and developing self-awareness and making decisions as to whether or not this is actually the right job for me, like a reverse interview, <laughs> right? It's not about just being interviewed, it's, it's the reverse interview piece. Any, any thoughts on that? Sure, so if I, if I can backtrack just briefly, there's been a lot of talk about the importance of happiness. Lots of books written about it. We all need to be happy. Just choose to be happy every day. Get up in the morning and just be happy. Happy, 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 happy. <laughs> we should have Pharrell Williams on the screen behind me right now, and then we could do a happy dance, and then we'd be happy. <laughs> but it's a little deeper than that. Happy's good. Uh, happy's important. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel happy. But one, of the, um, one of the pieces that, that underpins happiness is having a sense of purpose or meaning in our life. So when we think about applying for work with an organisation, one of the things we need to think about is, um, are they a fit? Well, firstly, I need to have some sense of, of my purpose. Why am I here? What do I want to do? What does meaningful work look like for me? And then do some research on the organisation before you front up for the interview. And then when you're in the interview, you know, go in prepared, yes. Have, have your answers, scripted or unscripted, uh, in terms of the, the questions that they might put to you during the interview, and then think about some questions that you might want to ask them. Because life is far too short, particularly if you're going to live to 125, life is far too short, seriously, to spend even two years working with an organisation where there is no fit. It's not good for you, it's not good for the company. The best thing that we could do is agree that, you know, at the interview or even before the interview so that I can go and find an organisation to work for where we have some shared values and a shared sense of purpose and meaning. And if I can just tack on that, the science very clearly shows that if you're chasing the money, the fastest way you'll get the money you want is to be happy. Because when we're happy with what we're doing, we bring that internal motivation, which means we bring awesome to the workplace. But as Graham said, if you go into the workplace and you're really not enjoying the people, the, the work that you're doing, you'll find it really difficult to get out of bed. And that just says your body's signal that this isn't right for me. And that's awesome because you've just ticked something off or crossed it off going, that one's not for me. Mm -hmm. And all of the successful people, they've got there because they did what they were awesome at. I'm two types of accountants. I don't do any accounting in my business because I'm not, I can do it, but I'm not awesome at it. What I love is teaching and right. writing. And so 95% of what we do sits in that space. So I encourage all of you, the moment you start to really feel this is not for me, pay attention to your body. Use the journaling because your body knows and you know. And understand why. Important not to just run away from things, right? But yeah. just understand why and develop that self-awareness. 
just really quickly, Danette, you mentioned something earlier today around the science of chasing things. So when we're looking for job opportunities, um, maybe you just quickly kind of share that point that we talked about earlier today. What happens when we try and chase things yep. um, versus being chased? Yep. So we are hardwired in our brain. Back in cave people days, if you were standing in a forest or a jungle and you heard this thing going towards you, what would you do? Scream, and what else would you do? Run like hell. <laughs> Run. And so we are still hardwired that way. So when you go and someone's running at you, and they may not be physically running at you, but they keep chasing up, keep chasing up. It's like they're chasing me, they're chasing me. What do I do? I run. The reverse also works, that when something runs away from you, you want to chase it. So when you're feeling a bit, oh, has that employer, oh, maybe I should chase them up again today, I've chased them yesterday, you're chasing them. Maybe run the other way a little bit. Disengage a little bit, not to say not interested, but just sort of step back a bit, because when we start running away from them, we become more attractive. It is automatically hardwired into all of your brains. And go and test it. So all of the stuff we learn about science, I say go and test it. Mm -hmm. And notice the results you get when you sort of go, and this is why interviewing them is as important as them interviewing you. Because you need to know that they're the best for you. And when you do that, they start to go, oh, well, maybe we need to have this person. Because you're confident, too. You're thinking about, this is right for me. I think many people in the room are thinking about starting their own agencies, looking for those types of opportunities. And even some of our coaches run their own agencies. Right? When it comes to even selling, whether it's finding a job or selling, everybody's been sold to before, right? And you have that person who just keeps calling you time and time again. And keep hitting decline, decline, right? You start, like, you just, you don't want just a noise, you want to run away, right? Versus that pull, right? Where you're interested, you want to go, you're attracted to it, you want to go and chase it within there. So definitely worth experimenting with. I'm conscious of time. Um, just wondering if we can maybe just have a couple comments from you. You know, you're working with a lot of leaders around this idea of creating time for themselves. Um, and not just for self-care. I mean, more time in a day or having higher quality time with the limited time that we do have. What are some of the really high value, very practical um, tactics or just actual practices and rituals that you're watching CEOs and presidents and leaders build into their own lives to be able to get more out of their day or have higher quality work for the work that they're putting in? Because we've talked about this lots. People are talking about working 10, 12 hours a day. But for those 10, 12 hours, I'm emailing with Facebook Messenger in my hand at the same time. <laughs> And Instagram, like we, we talk about not being, you know, having enough time in a day, but we're so busy doing things that are not actually aligned to it. So yep. as far as like, the quality of time, what are some of the things that you're seeing or coaching within some of your team members? Yep. Do you want to so uh, just a, a couple. Uh, the first, to your point about working 10, 12, 14 hour days, some, been, uh, some great work done by the Energy Project in the last six or seven years. Breaks are absolutely critical. Um, every, every study ever done on productivity, and particularly in terms of work quality and our own energy. You know, we can go at, at peak level for a certain period of time without a break, and then we start to taper off. And the longer you go without a break, the more, and at some point you literally just drop off the cliff. And we can be at work longer and be going backwards in terms of productivity, quality, focus, attention, and everything else. So one is breaks. Breaks are absolutely massive, absolutely huge. Uh, the second, I would say, is just give up now, forever, 
on the idea that you can effectively multitask until you find a different brain, like a non-human brain, because the human brain does not, cannot pay attention to two things simultaneously. Conscious attention is one or the other. So what we do is we task switch. We shift our attention, our focus rapidly. It's brain draining, and the quality of the work that we do is less on each of those activities that we're trying to do when we're doing this and we're doing that. So if two things just breaks and don't multitask wherever possible. I got the easy ones. Some of the things we see with our clients, and these are CEOs of massive organisations, is <coughs> that they realise the value of focus. So there's a great book called Irresistible, and I encourage all of you to either download it and listen to it, or if you like reading it, read it. Because Steve Jobs, when he, issued, when he released the iPad, the press said, so what do your kids think of this? And he said, my children will never touch these devices. And in, someone told me the other day, in Silicon Valley, they're the only high schools in America where devices are actually banned. Because your devices will cost you your fortune. Because when you get that good advice and your phone buzzes, sorry, not good advice, good idea, your phone buzzes, your brain goes and you've lost that great idea. And you only need one great idea and if you faultlessly execute it, you can have an amazing life. But how often do we start to get something, do something amazing and then we get distracted? And honestly, your, your focus is going to become your number one thing that whether you're working for yourself or you're working for someone else, they're going to look for. Because most people, and really scary, we fly across the world. You're watching the people who are directing the plane and they're on their phone while they're directing the plane. And I'm thinking, this is really scary. <laughs> imagine, imagine going to your doctors, you're in the middle of surgery and they're like, oh, oh okay, sorry. What, what, what am I doing there? And we literally can't multitask. And to this point, a friend of mine was reversing out of a car park where she'd just taken her daughter for a swimming lesson. And the woman next door was on her phone and her two-year-old was walking behind the reversing car. This, being the mobile phone or the device, is urgent because it blips, it buzzes, it rings. But you are important. Your ideas are important. Don't ever let the devices overtake because they will be the things that steal your time, mm -hmm. your energy, and so many other things. And in the case of that woman, she nearly lost her child. Wow. Can Hopefully I say one more? Please, yeah. No, one and this more. has to do with your time. As Graham said, breaks. We have a concept with a lot of our CEOs, five great hours. You work for five great hours and then you go home. And you do the rest of your life for the rest of the day. If you work for five hours solidly concentrating, you will achieve more than most people do in a week because of the distractions. So use your time really wisely and actually have a life. Go out afterwards and go mountain biking or hiking or skiing or whatever. Mm -hmm. But get that balance in your life as well. Love that. Sorry, yeah. that, this just buzzed, so I needed to pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> one, one other Two, re really quick one. Yep. Sorry, just really quick one. Um, once a week. Yeah. Go dark. So no devices, no screens at all for at least half a day. And I know it's winter here and, and it gets moderately cold, but as much as humanly possible, spend time outside and spend time alone. 
in nature, wherever possible, not with this. Sorry. You'll be awesome. That's great. And two other quick things maybe just to add to it. Um, one of the things that kind of ties into your point around just that focus, there's one thing that Robin Sharma teaches that just really sticks with me. It's called the 90-91. For the next 90 days, do, for the first nine min 90 minutes of your day, do the most important thing that's going to move the needle on your career and your life. So every single day for the next 90 days, those first 90 minutes of your workday, you have a monomaniacal focus on the number one most important thing in your life. If you do that consistently every single day, imagine the progress you're going to make within the course of that 90 days. And the cell phone piece, this is something that I was actually experimenting with over the last few weeks. And I got a notification from Apple saying that over the last week, I had a 49% decrease in the amount of time that I used in my phone. And you want to know what I did? I turned the color off on my phone. Go into the visual settings, turn off, put it to grayscale, put it to black and white. You will hate your phone. It sucks going on that thing with black and white. It is terribly boring. But it is terribly productive as well when we have to have that space. Yeah. So really specific, granular things around that maybe you'd help. Um, last question for you, and then we're going to enjoy the rest of our evening together with the group. Um, both of you, you're traveling around the world, meeting with amazing people. You are learning voraciously. Every single time we talk, you guys are not only meeting with clients, but going and learning and training yourselves as well. Best piece of advice you've ever been given? Best piece of advice. Flick it to you for a sequel, I think. No, you go first. No, I go first. Um, I would go, it was sort of quasi-advice, but I'd go back to James Rouse's thing about what would love do here. Every time you go into a meeting, before you walk through the door, send love into the room. Every time you're about to pick up the phone to have a conversation with someone, send love down the line, across the ether, whatever you want to use, um, to the person you're going to have the conversation with. Love it. And, and mine would be, make your life about service. First serve yourself, look after yourself, but then serve the world. Never play small. All of you have an amazing gift, which is different from the person next to you. Use that and create awesome in the world. You're all awesome. So let's be awesome. Well, join me in thanking Graham and Danette, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Magical Learning Podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, wherever you're listening to this, you can go back and listen to a lot of our old topics. You'll find the format changes a little bit, which is quite fun. So there's a lot of different styles of podcast in here. You can also watch each of our podcasts on YouTube. There'll be a link in the description if you prefer to do that. Uh, if you have any suggestions or would like to be on a, on a podcast in the future, please let us know. We'd love to help out. And as always, if you need any help with anything, please reach out. Have a magical week.